Hey, it's Bill Simmons, and the Ringer NFL Show has you covered for all your pro football needs. Sunday night, get Michael Lombardi and Tay Frazier's rapid reactions on GM Street. On Tuesdays, the Ringer NFL Show with Robert Mays, Kevin Clark, and regular guest Danny Kelly break down all the biggest angles on Wednesday. GM Street again on Thursdays. Clark, Mays, and Danny are back at it again. And on Friday, GM Street's Friday Focus gives you all the insight you need for gambling and everything else. Don't forget about my podcast, too, on Mondays. The BS Podcast, Cousin Sal and I playing Guest Alliance. More importantly, The Ringer NFL Show. Subscribe right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to a extra special transfer deadline day edition of Ringer FC, which is being recorded from the backseat of Harry Redknapp's car <laughs> while he rolls down the window Lovely at White Hart Lane. Uh, we have everyone today, Chris, Micah, and Donnie has, uh, I guess, put aside a couple minutes of from customizing his Aubameyang jerseys to talk with us as well. What's up, Donnie? <laughs> I am on top of the world. You champions, are on top of baby. The chromed champions. Out, <laughs> chromed out Ferrari. Um, today we're going to obviously talk about transfers, talk about some of the games, and then Chris and I have an interview with U.S. soccer presidential candidate Kyle Martino, um, owner of an incredible head of hair as well. Just head of hair. Um, that will be the third block of this. But first, let's get into the let's get into some overreactions as we always do. First one. This is not an overreaction, but Arsenal are in crisis. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. I, I listen, I like, okay, 3 1. I mean, okay, sorry. 2 0 to Tottenham is not 3 1 to Swansea, okay? Uh, yeah, so that was the first game back, restart of Premier League action. Um, after who did they play in the cup? I can't even remember. Chelsea. Chelsea. They're not in the FA Cup. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Let me uh, take it from here, Mike. Yeah, you should probably take it from here because I'm just too excited about you losing 3-1 to letting the Are You Brothers style on you. <laughs> the title race is on, gentlemen. What? <laughs> for, for Swansea? <laughs> for who? <laughs> for the Arsenal in 2018-19. This is the most exciting the team has been in a long time. This is the best transfer day, the single day in Probably Arsene Wenger's last 10 years. I'd like to hear your accounting of these events, actually, and then I'm going to tell you about what actually happened. More exciting the most, the most important thing that happened today is the re-signing of Mesut Ozil. Much maligned Mesut Ozil, <laughs> actually, I should say, but who has been Arsenal's best player uh, for the last handful of games and... <laughs> <laughs> You're completely uh, institutionalized. <laughs> You're com- Can we just say, Donnie? I want you. You're gonna keep. I'm gonna let you keep going with this. But Donnie is like a dude who has a survives a plane crash and thinks he's gonna live forever. And that's because he, you know, the Alex Smith deal last night to Washington <laughs> and losing Kirk has completely put the zap on his head. And now he's like, we resigned Ozil. It's like a new signing. I. Let me just let me just ask all the Arsenal fans who are listening to this podcast 
if I were to tell you at the beginning of this season that Alexis, Coughlin, Giroux, Oxley Chamberlain, and Walcott would be leaving. And Debussy. And Debussy. <laughs> replaced by Mkhitaryan, Obama Yang. Well, I guess that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, listen, you, you spent 55, you, sorry, you broke your club record um, for a player that no other big clubs would touch, um, who's, who turns 29 fairly soon. And Which you one? broke the. You're talking about Ozil. I'm talking. Well, no, I'm talking about Aubameyang. Oh yeah, Yo Pierre. Yeah, Yo Pierre. <laughs> we'll get to that. But you brought us. You, you, okay, so you bought Aubameyang, and broke the club record again for a player that plays in the same position who the last person that you broke the club record for, and that was this past summer, and you signed a 29 year old playmaker that was kind of a worn away and not as good as the player that you gave up. You guys, in all seriousness, <laughs> without the delusion, there is a lot of a sort of wag the dog aspect to today, uh, given that it's 48 hours after one of the most abject performances I've ever seen from an Arsenal team. But I do think that like Arsenal has long been criticized for not being aggressive and smart in the transfer market. And I think Actually getting Obama Yang, which in transfer windows past would have been one of those Twitter dreams that never came to fruition, is actually a sign that it's the fact that Arsene, Arsene Wenger has let go of Olivier Giroud and replaced him with Obama Yang proves to me that he's no longer in full control of what's going on with this team. And the new management direction is to compete with the cities and the Uniteds of the world. And I think... Sometimes it requires being a little ruthless and maybe overpaying and taking risks, but that actually is progress. I I, I appreciate how you're looking at this from the the most with the, through the most the rosiest possible glass. Um, there are positives to take away from this, mainly that Arsenal is now willing to pay their players at a competitive wage level and sort of break whatever their supposed wage structure was. And that they're willing to spend on players. Um, but here's the deal. Arsenal's eight points back of fourth place currently. Um, eight points back of a team that they've already played twice. So there's no head-to-head game they can gain um, on Liverpool with. They have an outside shot of winning the Europa League, um, which sort of ups their odds of qualifying for the Champions League. But the guy that they signed isn't eligible to play in the Europa League. And now, it's just, you know, it's Arsenal... so good. So Arsenal, is, <laughs> Arsenal has invested a, a ton of money in Aubameyang, Mkhitaryan, and Ozil, both from transfer fees um, with Aubameyang and wages with all three of them. Um, I think they're probably the three highest paid players on the team. And there's maybe a world where they sustain the level they're currently at for another season or two, but based on their age, none of these guys are getting better and none of them are have any resale value. Yeah, I was just going to chime in and say the market inefficiency that they are exploiting is expensive guys who we can't sell on and will probably drop off very soon. Because as soon as Obama Yang loses his step, 
he's going over the same cliff Fernando Torres did. This is this is literally the Brooklyn Nets from 2014. Yeah. Now that's that's pushing it. That's <laughs> yeah. pushing it. Like, <laughs> I will say this. I will say this. It, there's certainly an aspect, like I was mentioning, of appeasing the fans right now at kind of a low moment in the season. However, you can't remake your entire team in the January transfer window. And I think what this is doing is just setting a mark here that this is, team is going to be built around Obama Yang and Ozil and Lacazette and Mkhitaryan. Yeah, that you know they still are starting a Xhaka Elneny midfield and the central defenders are terrible at the moment. But this is at least hope. This is at least something different. And, and I think all of the dead weight now has kind of been ushered to the side and, and sold off and transferred. And now it's like a new, it's a whole new kind of mentality now. No Alexis. You got, oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand how you could Ryan, say all the dead I, weight has been got, gotten rid of when you still have Peter Check playing in gold. That's what I'm saying. Those are summer moves. Those are summer moves. <laughs> Ryan, can you give me some Aubameyang XG numbers, please? <laughs> <laughs> please, somebody help me. Aubameyang, his his stats are are great, um, both from an actual goal scoring and advanced number perspective. He's been one of the best in the world recently. But you know, it's like Micah said, you're spending all of this money to essentially. I'm I don't feel confident that Lacazette and Aubameyang are going to be able to play together, um, and if. Lacazette has to play on the wing. He's not worth all the money you paid for him. I paid for him. It's just um, that these are a bunch of moves that would have been exciting three years ago. Yeah, and I think from a rebuilding the team perspective, I think Arsenal doesn't have an unlimited amount of money. They can't just keep giving guys the contract they're giving Ozil and ca- continually splashing out all this money. And they're locking so much of it into these players that are only likely going to get worse. Um, well, here's the here's the bottom line. Every Arsenal fan knows that nothing is really going to change until Arsene Wenger is no longer the manager. So until he leaves, which now looks like it could be the end of 2019, at least give us some exciting Arsenal-style football. And I think Mkhitaryan, Aubameyang are those types of guys. I, it looks, in that, from that perspective, it looks like, then to me it looks like Arsene Wenger's buying guys that are going to be crapping out right when he leaves <laughs> like a, a Ferguson <laughs> which he's been trying to do a Ferguson for United yeah. situation um, but I think you'll have some exciting moments I, I will say that and the Obama give me some Yang, four twos yeah <laughs> the Obama Yang deal was part of a, a series of transfers that had to take place for each one to work yeah. right so we had the Giroud going to Chelsea we had Obama Yang coming from Dortmund to Arsenal and we had uh, Mishi Badishwa going from Chelsea to Dortmund. Yeah, so essentially was, a three-team trade. Yeah, and a weird was so kind of. Mishi was loaned, Giroud was sold, Aubameyang was sold. Chelsea is not in that much better of a state <laughs> than Arsenal is. Our second overreaction is Chelsea is in crisis. What do you think, Micah? I think they just lost 3-0 at home to Bournemouth. Um, That'll be it for Conte. I I think it should be. You think he's done, like, now? I wouldn't be surprised if he's fired while we're recording this podcast. Right after the transfer window. Yeah, he's been yeah. shit-talking the the ownership and and Marina, the the woman who does the transfers at Chelsea, 
pretty much every day in the in the in the press. Do you I think, don't even know that there you got that they, he gave this many press conferences. I feel like every day there's a new Conte statement about he doesn't know whether Abadishwai's stay or leaving. He's been asking for X, Y, and Z player. It's almost embarrassing the people that they've been linked with over the course of the last month, whether it's Andy Carroll, Giroud, they seem to only be interested Ashley in giant Barnes. target yeah. men. Anybody, yeah. anybody that's Crouchy. over 6'3". Don't forget three. Crouch. Yeah, yeah, it was, can't it was, forget Crouch. Yeah, Peter Crouch, Ed and Jekko, and yeah, Andy Carroll. Yeah. They, jo- like jo- I've, Josie Altidore. I'm very much enjoying <laughs> this period of austerity, Chelsea. So did they get Palmieri? They yeah, did. they did. Yeah, but they, they got him and... You know, the other day, uh, Conte was saying that he doesn't really remember Emerson Palmieri, the fullback who they signed. He doesn't really remember him from his days in Italy. And then sort of talked about how Emerson suffered a really bad injury and essentially was saying, like, I don't know who this dude is and I don't think he's worth a shit because he's has might only have one functional leg. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's. I mean, just like the he's past, done. they lost three nothing at home to so Bournemouth. Do you think? In, do in you the think past, has any Chelsea manager survived a, a result no, like that? No, and there's no sort of there's no protection between the manager with like Michael Emanalo gone. Yeah. Now, um, so do you think they just have like Gus Hiddink on like a button or they press? Angelotti or somebody is, just because Hiddink's essentially done this interim thing for them multiple times. Yeah, yeah. yeah here's and he X just raises pounds, his price. Please get us into Champions League and see us through the group stages. Yeah, it's uh, so they or see us through the knockouts. Uh, so they lost to Bournemouth three nothing at home, which is like it's such a stark contrast to Chelsea of what like four or five years ago, where it was like Stamford Bridge. They like never ever 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 lost. Um, let alone gave up goals. Let alone gave up three goals um, yeah. to Bournemouth. Um, and, you know, it's now Chelsea's tied for fourth with Liverpool, you know, all of a sudden, and maybe they fire their manager. Who knows what that brings? Tottenham just beat Man U. Um, Tottenham's coming on strong. It's, it's not a great situation at Chelsea. Um, they got a lot sexier though with Giroud. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's, that's the thing to me. It's like, so Michi... Basically, whenever he's played for Chelsea, he's scored. Um, has, what, 10 goals this season despite, yeah. like, barely playing at all. Scored a ton last season despite playing, like, five minutes a game. Um, and for some reason there, it's just such an uncreative way of solving their attacking issues. The thought was, oh, we just need to buy another large striker rather than being like, oh, we actually have this young guy who has been scoring a ton, let's just use him. Or we need another attacking midfielder that can create in a certain way or a defensive midfielder who can sort of cycle the ball around. It was just like, let's buy a striker and that's how you solve your midfield issues. It, It reminds me of the old like... We're going for a game, so we're switching to a four-four-two. Yep, which mm-hmm. is just that's not how soccer works. It's yeah. weird that Conte has been so fixated on that big striker that the last couple of games that Michi was playing, he was scoring, assisting, and really working well with Eden Hazard. It's kind of he's leaving. I, I mean, Dortmund is actually it's a pretty good replacement for Obama Yang, I would think. It, it's a very a very Dortmund yeah. move, um, cashing in on Obama Yang, replacing him for free essentially with Michi. Um, but the other, like, again, it goes back to this sort of dissonance we're seeing with the club where yesterday, like, Conte said that um, Mishi was in contention for tomorrow's game. Yeah. Which, like, speaks to, is he Just in control of what's happening kind here? kind of communication from top to bottom? Yeah. Yeah, it's, 
I mean, it's to say nothing of the fact that haven't they bought and sold David Luiz like three, three or times four now? Times? I, mean, yeah. I, I don't even we, as yeah. we're recording. I believe he's still on Chelsea, but there was rumors about him going to Arsenal. There's rumors about I'm sure he'll leave in the summer again, which is you could buy a great player with all the money that Chelsea has wound up spending on players that they're buying back from other clubs and the ones that they should have actually bought back, which is probably Lukaku and De Bruyne, they didn't. You know what I mean? Like yep. They gave up the two players who probably would have been the, the most, the best and third best players on Chelsea right yeah. now. Well, and it's like, and look at like who they're buying. Like, Bakayoko is... That's kind of like a potential buy, right? You're, you're, he should be a squad player for Chelsea. Yeah. Given um, what we expect. But at that. least he's young and sure. has talent. But then it's like Drinkwater and Zappa Costa, who's like a at best a fringe player, and like Ross Barkley, same thing. He's not he's not if he's starting for you every weekend, you're not a top fourteen. It doesn't you know? feel like, like the what Chelsea are they doing? Like, like Chelsea they're trying to change their image to be like we're more of a I mean, that that seemed to wasn't that the thing when they were when they were linked with Drinkwater. They wanted the British. Yeah, core they wanted or a British. Did core. they say that? Yeah, I, it was something. There was like a. I think there was a report. Because to me, it's like yeah, there was a Telegraph. Chelsea, yeah. the Chelsea that I I know from from the last fifteen years are the Chelsea that would have been like we're we're in for Kane, we're in for Ollie, we're in we're going and buying the top of the be- the best of the best, and obviously they have this transfer system where they're essentially funding the club for lack... I mean, like, Roman Abramovich is no longer really funding this club. It's this weird shadow franchise that they have of, what, 40 players that are various out on loan. Yeah. I'm not saying that that's the entire... That's not their entire revenue stream, but it, it it's interesting to see this go from a vanity project that Roman was pouring all this money into to this weird corporation now where the buys don't really make any sense and there's obviously one hand doesn't know what the other's doing and clearly Conte wins the title and is like cannot wait to get out of there uh, well i mean like also i don't know what was it was he like this when he was managing uh like Sienna was just kind of like i've i need I he was like this, this at Juventus. Yeah, he. I need he, this thing to fill this space. I need to have two trolls, tree stalks in the center that I can just whack crosses off of, and eventually it's going to bounce off and go. <laughs> well, he was very kind agitated of, about transfers at Juventus, and that's yeah. apparently why he left. He's mm. very uh, uh, on the this other podcast, the Double Pivot. They conver- compared Conte to Tom Thibodeau, oh. in mm. his sense that he's like very stubborn about what he wants and runs his players into the ground at the same time um, and just doesn't seem like a fun person to work with. Um, yeah, first, like, one of the first, like, Chelsea TV things he did that were just like, what do you do, what do you What do you say to your players when, you know, like, they don't track back or don't do the extra five yards of work and he's just like, I'll kill them. Yeah, he threatens to kill his he's players. Also yeah. been, he's also been <laughs> just basically been like, I don't want to live in London. For yeah. most of the time, he's been living in London. Yeah, I mean, I it's, there's... I think we kind of all maybe did feel like there was a shelf life on this move even when he first arrived. So I guess good on them for getting a Premier League title out of it. Yeah. Uh, they were wonderful last year. Like, they were just, like, absolutely mind-blowing last year. Well, they, I mean, like, it's great. also kind of just you— He only needed to finish higher than seven to be moving in the right direction, and he still had all of the players that were on the title-winning team before that. Yeah, he sort of had— the lowest expectations Chelsea's ever had, probably, mm-hmm, yeah. and also didn't have to play European. And had Angola contact. Didn't have to play European <laughs> and football. Had yeah. um, all right. Former, speaking of former Chelsea managers, third overreaction is 
Manchester United are in crisis? <sighs> uh, 11 seconds. 11 seconds is how long it took Tottenham to get on the board against United today. Um, just Ashley Young, just just cold chilling on, <laughs> on the outside, just letting <laughs> Christian Eriksen just waltz right by him and poke it in the back of the net. It's not so much that, like, our— it, like, it's absolutely unsurprising that we didn't end up getting, like, the center, the, the the holding midfielder or, like, the center back that we needed in the transfer window. But it's also, like, unbelievable that we didn't get the midfielder or the center back that we needed in the transfer window. At the same time, it's just kind of like, it's it, it was an absolute mess. I have no idea why Chris Smalling is still there or why him and Phil Jones ever play together. <sighs> Are you still a Chris Smalling fan? Me? You used to love him. I, I was I loved him at Fulham. <laughs> no. I, uh, it's it's always interesting to see these guys who are cast off from these big clubs um, become hot property in the transfer market. Although I, by all accounts, Johnny Evans is staying at West Brom. But Johnny Evans, who is Pep Guardiola's going after him, and Arsene Wenger's going after him. He was just just a Manchester United center back. For years, man. I mean, he was a Manchester United center back, like a, a fairly like underwhelming, like you know what you're getting with Johnny Evans, and it's just to the point in the season where everyone is injured and you just need, like, I need six out of ten yeah. every game, like, and I mean it's, which really just casts that the Drew transfer in like a really strange light. It's like Arsenal is just selling off proven players in the Premier League to direct rivals just willy-nilly. Yeah, this isn't about Arsenal, though. Yeah, I know. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to deflect. It's, it's just... <sighs> Donnie, what do you think of what United's up to? I just think, I find it interesting. We were talking about the Swansea result, this result for United, Chelsea losing to Bournemouth. It's like these teams that are, like, really active right now in the window are all kind of struggling and even with their new additions are struggling and it's just City that's sort of chugging along. I mean, I guess Spurs won today, but, um, you know, and it's no coincidence. <laughs> I mean, but Liverpool is just coming out of a, I was hearing clop out just like a week ago. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so. But I guess the point is I'm, I'm trying to make or the question I, I guess I post to you guys is like, all City did was buy a defender, right? I mean, they tried to get Mares, I guess, at the at the last minute to because Sané got hurt. But all these other teams, Chelsea, United, and Alexis, are like switching chess pieces on the front line, and it's like doesn't you know? I mean, it feels like we were we were going into this season, and we were talking about a big six, and we were talking about how the top of the league was each one was managed by a genius, and it's really a big one, and that's driving the five nuts. Yeah, and they're just kind of scrambling. The five five are having... I mean, Liverpool was unbeaten for, what, like 18 or something like that? Um, And different teams have gone on different runs this season. But it just feels like the the reality of being in a group of five that are all bunched together, I think actually it revitalizes my interest in the Premier League down the run because you're just going to have an absolute battle royale for those three spots left. But, man, I mean, it's it's really must be... Must be like pretty chaotic at those clubs when you just can't put together a run of six or nine points in a row. Well, just at this very moment, it feels like obviously City notwithstanding, Liverpool and Spurs seem like the most stable teams right now. I mean, I know Van Dyke was the huge buy a couple of weeks ago, but he's a defender. And it's like Chelsea, United and Arsenal right now are kind of like 
scrambling and trying to fans like to buy new shirts and see guys unveiled and things like that. And it's just, it is a lot of smoke and mirrors and, and, and kind of like, yeah, just desperation in some, in some regard. There's definitely a, a sort of extremely cynical way of looking at this of like Giroux going to Arsenal, Mkhitaryan, or Drew going to Chelsea, Mkhitaryan going to Arsenal, Sanchez going to United is just like nothing actually changes, but it's temporarily boosting some sort of revenue <laughs> that each team makes for agents. Yeah. And it, fan it drives up agents, interest. Obviously, for agents obviously for next agents summer. is yeah. a yeah. big part of it. Um, from this Man U game, we should just briefly mention that Maron Fellaini got subbed on for Paul Pogba and then got subbed off seven minutes later. <sighs> uh, and it, it's not unclear right now if he was injured. Um, I mean, like, there was... Uh, I think there was... I can't remember who 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 put in the challenge on him like immediately after he came on, but it looked like he might have landed funny. But at the same time, it didn't seem like it was enough to warrant coming off seven minutes after coming on. And coming <laughs> on for Paul Pogba in a game where you need to make up two goals. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a great sub in the first place. Yeah. Um, it was just, there was some, there's some symbolism to... Mourinho's team falling behind, and then to save the game, Mourinho subs on David Moyes' two biggest signings, Juan Mata and Marilyn Fellaini. Uh, do you think he was making a statement with that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I my, like, my, it, it means maybe he was making a That's the only conceivable like reasoning there could have possibly been for subbing off Lingard and Pogba for for Fellaini and, and Mata in the 69th minute. Michael, let me ask you, I didn't watch the game, but how did Alexis do? Can I guess? Did he throw his hands up? <laughs> did he look disgusted and frustrated? He looked, he, there was a did lot he, of... Did he give the ball away cheaply? He, 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 you know, he gave the ball away cheaply and he, he looked kind of exasperated. But not like specifically at any one of his teammates, just like in general. Just in like general, yeah. With life. Yeah, I, I think we all can agree that... Um, that game kind of confirmed that Alexis Sanchez was a luxury buy for Man U and not really <laughs> anything that they needed to fix what was wrong with the team. Yeah. Um, all right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to talk some more about the transfer window. Guys, what's up? I got called Dime Store Giannis playing pickup basketball the other day, so you can imagine that finding a dress <laughs> shirt that fits me is pretty difficult. Uh, something is always off. Thankfully, ordering a custom fit shirt has never been easier than with proper cloth. At propercloth.com, you can easily create a custom shirt size in seconds by just answering 10 simple questions. Not to mention, you can choose over 20 collar styles. That's a lot of collar styles, guys. 10 cuff styles and 500 fabric styles from classic to business to completely customize your shirt and get the style that you want. The team at Proper Cloth works with the best fabric producers from around the world and only buys fabrics that meet their high-quality expectations. It's important to have standards. Each one... Each one of their shirts goes through extensive quality control testing, so you're getting the absolute best quality and craftsmanship you can be sure of it. Best of all, Proper Cloth guarantees a perfect fit, meaning that if somehow your shirt doesn't fit perfectly, they will remake it for free. This is the future of shirts. These shirts are made completely custom for you, starting at just $80. It's not even a whole hundred. Stop wearing shirts that don't fit. Start looking your best with a custom-fitted shirt. 
Go to propercloth.com slash FC today. Enter the gift code FC to save $20 on your first shirt. Do it today, guys. Today. Welcome back. Uh, it's Ryan, Chris, and Micah. Donnie left to uh, go try to figure out how to spell Mkhitaryan. (laughs) (laughs) And for this segment, we just want to have, we have one zonal question mark, more conceptual. And the question is, why was this transfer window so crazy? And I ask it not from the sense of, man, Chester City is driving everyone nuts and they're all spending because Manchester City also spent a good amount of money this window. I think... Last year, the window was pretty quiet. This year, every team in the top six made at least one very high-profile addition, which is, that's just rare. Uh, I don't think, I can't remember the last time every team in contention was making a big move. Um, so what do you guys think? Why why all the movement? I definitely think that there's uh, a couple of these moves started in the summer. So yeah. these are the finishing of business that began in the summer. You had Van Dyke was on the verge of going to Liverpool until that whole thing fell apart. Aubameyang's been uh, agitating to get out of Dortmund for a while. First it was Madrid, then it was China. Now it's Arsenal. You had uh, Sanchez, who wanted out of Arsenal probably last season yeah. and wanted a move and almost got his 60 million pound move to Manchester City, but that fell through and there was rumors of Raheem Sterling coming the other way. So this was a lot of... Uh, crossing the I's and, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's for deals that I think had begun, even if the actual destinations weren't the same, deals that had been begun in the summer. That's why I think we saw a lot of business earlier in the window as well. Yeah. I I think I agree. That's definitely a part of it. I think the interesting thing is we've talked about it a little bit in the past about, like, not whether it's growing player power, but maybe the changing dynamics of player power like we've seen you know we know Luis Suarez for example wanted to leave Liverpool they refused to sell him then they re-sign him to a higher wage he gets paid at that higher wage for a year and then they sell him to Barcelona the next summer and that has typically been the way that you would I guess deal with a, a quote-unquote one away player but it seems like all of these guys you none of them signed that sort of temporary contract extension mm-hmm. They all kind of just saw out or refused to sign a deal if they were offered one or saw out what was left on their deal. And it paid off for pretty much everyone because they got their move halfway through the season rather than having having to sit around. Yeah, well, I mean, like, what, what what's another example of that? I can't even think of one. But there was that interesting transfer story that was going on. Well, between, Aubameyang is. Well, yeah, of, well, Aubameyang. But also there's, <laughs> I think in terms of player agency, one story that we haven't touched on was the whole Kyle Lahren Besiktas thing mm-hmm. where he was just like I've I'm done at Orlando City. I he took a picture in a Besiktas jersey and was on the Besiktas Twitter handle. Yeah. That and was City is just like he's still a Orlando City player. Yeah. But and then ultimately Orlando City said that they were allowing the transfer. That was that's sort of the extreme example of a player sort of pushing pushing yeah. a move through. Um, I guess the other thing that I thought coming in, I thought a lot of, we'd see a lot of movement because of the World Cup Mm -hmm. coming up, but a lot of the names, you know, Laporte, who went to City, doesn't, hasn't gotten a senior cap yet. Chile is not in the World Cup. Netherlands aren't in the World Cup. Um, 
Aubameyang's Gabon, Gabon isn't in the World Cup. Yeah. The only kind of World Cup-related moves that I saw were Sturge going Sturge, to West Brom yeah. and uh, Theo Walcott, goal scorer yeah. and, today, and, going to know, Everton. That, and that was why Mingale probably wanted to get... Why he made noises once they decided that Karius was going to be the number one keeper at Liverpool. He wanted to be, I guess, Thibaut to, to Courtois' uh, backup. Yeah. <laughs> so he well, wanted to... Lucas Moura. I mean, like... That's true. Yeah. yeah. That's... That's kind of been a couple of years in the making. He's been sitting on All that. of these yeah. feel like they're a couple of years. And Ross Barkley feels like they've been yep. talking about Ross Barkley, well, yeah. the city or Chelsea for a long time. And he wound up at Chelsea. Yep. You know, it's, it's a lot of this stuff. You wonder whether or not these deals are getting more and more complicated. I feel like we hear a lot more about agents sort of and their role in this. Like Kia Draption was, was very much a part of why, uh, why Coutinho left Liverpool. Um Sounds like Alexis's agent is an interesting cat. Is a, a I don't was he Russian? No, I, I think he's Chilean. As, okay, as well. Um, yeah, and I, I think the other thing we're seeing is we talked about this again over the summer too, especially with Ozil and Sanchez. It's like Sanchez refuses to sign a new deal, ultimately goes to Manu, and reportedly becomes the highest paid player in Premier League history. You never know with the wages that get reported by teams because there's there's always sort of a an agenda behind everything. And then Ozil runs out his contract. Arsenal realized that they have no one to replace him. And he becomes the one of the he highest paid player in the league. Possibly the highest paid player in Premier League history. Yeah. So it, it does seem like there's the wave is starting to move um, of players essentially treating their contracts the way American athletes treat their contracts. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I also feel like it's going to... I'll be very interested to see what happens after the World Cup because I got to admit, not a lot of these deals make a ton of sense to me. Like, they're not... They they don't really fit in with the transfers that I feel like we've grown accustomed to, which is a lot of buying, developing players, buying players' resale value, Mm -hmm. keeping a wage bill, like, relatively intact because you want to... uh, You know, if Ozil gets paid 350000 What's Ramsey ask for? What does, you know, Wellbeck ask for? Like, even if it's nowhere near that, it's still going to be a lot. You know what I mean? It's about not screwing up your locker room by paying guys four times as much as somebody who maybe does play defense sometimes. Yeah. You know, and I I think that there's a, because everybody is so desperate to stay or get into the Champions League, the only team that I feel like, again, and I'm not necessarily saying this in admiration, it's just kind of a fact that kind of kept their head about them is Tottenham. Now, you can make the argument that Tottenham is negligent in supporting what is a very talented generation of players on their team, but they didn't go out and say, panic and buy Van Dyke. You know, and that mm-hmm. I, I do think that there is an element of panic to, to Liverpool spending that much money on Van Dyke. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think part of that is Tottenham, just they operate from a different financial reality yes. than the other five teams, um, at least temporarily. Uh, but... We've seen that, you know, I think the Lucas Mora signing was smart, and it seems like they're, it's like a step below what Arsenal used to do, and they're just buying, like, the cast-offs from PSG, mm-hmm. which is really mm-hmm. not a terrible that's strategy. That's Sanchez yeah. was for Barcelona. Yeah, yeah, exactly, if you're looking to save money. But that's the kind of thing where we've also seen, you know, you end up getting Musa Sissoko, and yes. then, then you're like... You know, you have the best season in the club's history, and if you had someone other than Musa Sissoko contributing, 
maybe Tottenham wins the Premier League yeah. last year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's I think it's it's a combination of all of the teams have more money, so they're willing to spend more. And I think teams are probably, you know, there's a countless examples in research that show that what correlates with winning, not transfer spending, but how much you're paying your players, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which is a f- pretty obvious thing, um, but it's sort of only creeping into soccer discourse, I think, recently. I, I briefly wanted to touch on Dortmund because I think what they're doing, it's sort of the exact opposite of Arsenal, where Arsenal have a very slim chance of getting into the Champions League, right? And they're just basically betting the farm that these three guys are going to be able to help them do it, even though they're not going to be with the club for very long. While Dortmund is, their underlying numbers are better than their performance, but they're still in a very tight top four race. And yet they've sold Dembele and they've sold um, Aubameyang. Aubameyang and they're just sitting on the money. And they're it seems like they're essentially banking on the fact that they're going to be good enough to still qualify for the Champions League, but it's a pretty big risk, and then be able to use this boatload of money once the market is maybe settled down. I mean, they also are sticking to their model. You yeah. know, despite I think the the Ukrainian guy that they bought, what was that guy's name? Uh, Yarmolenko. Yeah. He's a little bit older than the player yeah. they typically buy, and yeah. they bought him to replace some of the Dimbolt belly goals, and that was more of a, a breaking case of emergency thing. But for the most part, they remain the place where you send like young and developing yeah. talent to, yeah. to get minutes yeah. and then become really good and then sell them on for like shit tons of money. And they, they have experienced probably a little bit more upheaval on the management side than they are yeah. used to in the last 10 years. But I think they really did think that Tuchel was going to be the, the guy there for a while. Mm-hmm. And now they've got this guy from Cologne, Stoger. Right. Yeah, to sort of just settle things down. Yeah, and maybe Nagelsmann is coming, or maybe Nagelsmann the Bruce is going Arena to of Dortmund. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the Arena. So it's they're they're fascinating because patience is something that's becoming more and more rare in football. Yeah. So yeah. even you can see it like with 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 Liverpool these last two weeks, they lose to Swansea, they lose to West Brom, and all of a sudden everybody's just like, "We should have just spent seventy five million on a block." You know, like this is crazy. Yeah. We or pay whatever you have to pay to get Nabi Keita. Or just been like, <laughs> Five months what does Coutinho just... need? Like, what is the check that he needs mm-hmm. to stay? You know, as soon as people saw the West Brom game, they were like, that that game missed Coutinho. It yeah. missed somebody to break down the defense. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, also, that's just, part of that is, part of that is due to just the natural hyperbole that filters up around English football. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, it's just, you have to fix it now. We need this player. We need that. Whatever, whatever, whatever. Just because... It's, it's there in front of you all the time, every week, and everybody talks about it. Yeah. Well, what do you guys make of Man City, like, clearly being the best team and then also spending over $50 million on another center back and then also trying to get <laughs> Riyad Mahrez for another whatever, whatever $60 million when he seems kind of surplus? I just think it's very funny that, like, a lot of Man City supporters will just kind of go on and on about how good their youth development is. And then as soon as Leroy Sané goes down, it's we need to buy instead of let's play Brahim Diaz. Yeah. Which, well, the Mares thing I thought was specifically because they they want to win the Champions League too. Well, yeah. yeah. So you can buy a player who's not cup-tied for the CL and, and get after it in that way. Yeah. Uh, the Laporte signing, I can't say that I've seen a ton of Bilbao this year, but Pep said... They asked Pep after the game about whether or not, you know, how they thought he, Laporte, who immediately started, 
how they felt about him. And Pep said, some people are saying he's expensive, but what if he's cheap? <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know I mean, what? Can you argue with if that? If Leicester City is asking for $95 million for Mares and Dembele is triple figures and Coutinho's triple figures, if this dude winds up being a 10-year starter at center back, isn't he cheap at $57 yeah. million? You know what? I kind, yeah, of, I kind of think that is almost like not a self-own, but it's, you know, we're talking about Dortmund and how they're being smart. And they're being smart because of what resources they have. For Manchester City, you don't operate your team like Dortmund does because of all the, all the money you have. So maybe that is cheap for Manchester City. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think Dortmund is trying to run their team sort of in a responsible way that maybe like runs a profit. Manchester City is, they don't care about making money, right? It's all about just winning as much as they can. Um, and they have essentially unlimited funds to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah. It, in the grand scheme of things, 53 million pounds, yeah, likely probably is cheap. I mean, what does that mean anyway with all the TV money that's going being thrown around? And on top of that, if you can sign a center back for 75 mil, 55 is, I guess, reasonable, especially if you need to – if you need – if you are in need of a new center back – in the January transfer window, and you're going to be playing markup anyway. The cool thing is, is that I was listening to the On the Continent podcast, and they were talking about Laporte and how he's much closer to Stones than he is Otamende. That mm-hmm. basically, if you're if your center back pairing is the platonic ideal, is one guy goes and the other guy stays. Like mm-hmm. one's an aggressive ball winner, and the other one orchestrates the back line and like kind of keeps everybody in, in line and like knows how to read the game more. That Laporte is way closer to Stones, and that he wants to take three strides forward. He wants to like push the ball. He wants so he's to get... a ball playing center back. So is right? this dude? Is Pep basically like fielding two midfielders at center back now with Stones and Laporte, and is essentially abandoning all traditional ideas of defense? So it's just he's playing his fullbacks as defensive midfielders, and he's got his center backs who are probably as good as like Granit Xhaka in terms of handling the ball in the midfield. Well, I mean... If I offered you Laporte and Stones as shielding midfielders for Liverpool right now, would you take it? Sure. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's one of the things that makes a great manager great is that they keep evolving, you know, because teams are are eventually going to figure out sort of ways to counteract City. Um, And if City has the ball all the time, why not have two guys that can split a defense open from the back rather than one? Yeah, I mean, well, it's <clears throat> kind of like how Batman is a tax audit away from being a regular human being. It's just like Manchester City, the only way that you can really stop them is just by disrupting the flow of things. Like we've seen that's that not you can't true, really— though. That's not true, though. That's not, that's not how Liverpool beat them. It was it was dis- it was disrupting the flow of things, and then it was like a flurry of three goals. Yeah, in eight minutes, I mean, I just like because I think oh, I guess I thought you were saying more like you build a wall. And oh you no, 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 no! I mean, yeah. like disrupt them, as in like I mean, literally disrupt the rhythm. Yeah, I mean, like get you have to make like their their center backs. Af- af- I mean, their their center forwards af- afraid to play with their back to goal. You have to get stuck into challenges in the, in the midfield. You have to take away those passing lanes, and it requires, like, a lot of running. Yeah, yeah. And just adding two more center backs that are, like, ball-playing center backs that can, you know, take those three strides forward and pick out the pass and the, like, to, uh, I mean, to find the seams on their own without, you know, like, not just hoofing it and hoping for the best or only winning the ball makes that even more difficult. 
This yeah. is the most annoying thing about City to me is that not only can they buy anyone they want, they know exactly who they want to buy. Yeah, and that's that's sort of the problem with United right now is that it's he, just throwing money. Sanchez at the problem. feels yeah. like what do we like? We have a, all this money that's basically burning a hole in our pocket. Who's the biggest best? attacking player we can buy because we're not scoring enough goals so we buy Sanchez it's it's like United is playing FIFA ultimate team and City is playing football manager City has actually got all the money in the world to spend it like we thought Arsenal would spend it back when they were like we're buying all the best young players you know yeah 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 I I totally agree it's you know we've seen Athletic Madrid Dortmund sort of on underfunded teams make runs in the Champions League. We saw Leicester make their run. And that's kind of only possible when the richest teams aren't sort of maximizing every inefficiency. (laughs) And Manchester City seems to be doing that, which, you know, might not bode that well for the competitiveness of this league going forward. It might not. I mean, it really, you you get into a warrior situation where you're dependent on the managers in the case of city it's the managers in the case of the golden state it might be steph and kd's engagement with the project and yeah. and maybe pep pushes himself too hard and he can't coach any one place for more than 4 or 5 years and he wants to go and coach in cutter yeah psg i don't <laughs> no idea where he wants to coach next where he wants to take a national team or what but you know like until he decides otherwise i don't understand the the and until until Kevin De Bruyne no longer plays for the Manchester City, they're gonna buy somebody to replace Aguero next year. It's just like they're gonna get the the guy that you're like, I can't believe they got him. I yeah. those rumors already started up. It was uh, like Aguero for Griezmann on a straight swap for the with Atleti. Yeah, and then they also you know get Gabriel Jesus for like thirty million, and he's gonna be yeah. the next Aguero. Also, yes. <laughs> you know, it's has he even turned twenty one yet? I don't know. Um, but every podcast we do winds up coming back to this. Yeah, yeah I, we, I, it, we came in here with the the objective of talking about how crazy the transfer window is, and I think all the transfer window actually did for the three of us is make us more despair resigned, even further more resigned about, to Manchester City's inevitability. Well, I yeah. would have more of a problem with it if they weren't so goddamn fun to watch. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but we'll we'll see if in a year we're saying the same thing. Yeah. Um, all right, we're gonna take a quick break and then. We're going to talk to Kyle Martino, a presidential candidate for U.S. soccer. Hey, guys. You want to look good with your significant other this Valentine's Day, right? Then check out Me Undies Matching Pairs, a unique, fun gift for you and your Valentine. Made from the softest materials on earth, we're talking three times softer than cotton soft. Me Undies are the most comfortable and fun undies you and your significant other will ever own. And right now... MeUndies has an exclusive Valentine's Day offer just for my listeners. If you're a first-time purchaser, you can get 20% off plus free shipping when you purchase MeUndies matching pairs. MeUndies guarantees you and your significant other will love your matching pairs or your money back. This is a no-brainer. Get 20% off matching undies for you and your significant other and 100% satisfaction guarantee. What are you waiting for? Order by February 5th for free standard shipping. To get 20% off your matching pairs, free shipping, 100% satisfaction guarantee, go to MeUndies.com slash FC. That's MeUndies.com slash FC. This will be the best Valentine's Day gift that you will give. Start matching your bottom half to your better half. Go to MeUndies.com slash FC right now. Hey guys, uh, Ringer FC here. Chris Ryan, Ryan O'Hanlon here with Kyle Martino, uh, president. 
Freudian yeah. slip. Yeah. You can say <laughs> yeah. president if you're, yeah. I'm uh, feeling pretty good. Candidate for U.S. soccer president, um, NBC Sports Premier League broadcaster, former MLS Rookie of the Year. That's going way back. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, Kyle? How are you guys doing? Thanks for having me. Kyle, you're out here... How was your uh, American Outlaws experience? You oh. guys were out that you, you were out there yesterday, right? I don't get to be a fan much. Actually, I haven't been a fan that way since I was probably a teenager. Where yeah. you don't have a weekend job. Even back then, I felt like I had a weekend job. I was crazy like that, where the game was everything, and you're just playing nonstop. So to be able to check out and go to a tailgate, throw on a scarf, yeah. grab a beer. And uh, and juggle in a in a in a circle and <laughs> get ready for a U.S. game. You it, you really kind of it strips you away and you forget about all the hats that you wear. Yeah, and uh, it was cool. It's just I mean you have to see it from that vantage point to really understand what what it means to be a fan and and why it means enough to them to have chapters all over the country and to jump on planes and go all over the world to to support this team. So it was cool. I was wondering because like, you know, so much of what your platform is for your for your presidential run here, a lot of that has to do with improving the culture for players and improving the sort of the infrastructure that the players and young kids have in this country to yeah. play soccer. But I was wondering how much of the job could you foresee also being like a custodian of the fan experience here too? Because you're somebody who you're becoming basically associated with the English Premier League. When I see your face, I think, oh, yeah, Saturday yeah. mornings, let's go, let's do it. And Every, it's like, everything with the accent yeah, is totally right. associated. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, I mean, do you think that, uh, do, you, do, you, do you feel that way? I mean, I, I suppose, like, the bigger question would be, like, how have you noticed the fandom changing over the years? Because I think, like, we see, obviously, a much higher fluency with the international yeah. and, obviously, the European game. Well, you said a few things there that are incredibly important. There are many issues of consequence in this election, sure. for sure. Um, but culture ha has to be way up there on the list of things that you have to focus on. We, we must continue to grow a soccer culture. And it's a unique challenge in a country where there's a crowded sports landscape. And the paradigm will never shift towards us being a one-sport nation. That will never happen. We will never be like Argentina or or France or Spain, sure. where they just live, breathe the game, and it, it, it is their their preeminent sport. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't capitalize on the inertia of the greatest game on the planet, f moving a culture in the right direction. But we haven't focused on growing that from the grassroots level. We, we have been engaging in a trickle-down economics where spend all the money up at the national team level, the professional level, and, and hope that that investment makes it down to building fields and opening up access to the underserved community, and it's never happened. It's getting worse and slowly trending in a, di in a direction where we we are, if we allow this kind of arrogance and disproportionate investment to metastasize, it, it will kill a soccer culture in this country. So that's essentially focus on that. But but you said custodian of fans, is that what you said? Yeah. I mean, I mean that's, that's a really good way to put it. I would say kind of a conduit. I mean, you're not, we need to get rid of this idea that there is a hierarchy where as president or as part of the federation, that soccer house in Chicago is emblematic of, uh, you know, in a regal sense, we oversee the fiefdom. I mean, it, it really shouldn't be that way. It needs to sit underneath the pyramid and the touch points that need to be felt are throughout the whole membership. Now, then just break it down. Who who are the members? Yeah. And fan is, I think, if you're going to do a Venn diagram of who's involved in this game, fan over, overlaps everything. I mean, you have to be a fan of this game in order to really have the genuine approach of growing that soccer culture and 
and watching this game grow in this market. So the American Outlaws, uh, they they have started a grassroots movement. And um, I believe it was like 2006, seven when they began. The idea was just grab a friend, give them a beer, put an arm around them and say, come watch this game with us. Yeah. Because it's almost like the Apple ad. If you, if you go way back, and this is way back for all of us when we were <laughs> little kids, but... Um, there was an idea that technology was dangerous and it wasn't approachable. And they came up with this incredible idea. It, make it sexy, make it sleek, the, the aesthetics of it and Ivy and just going through the, the idea of touch it, touch the computer, but get close to the computer. Soccer in a weird way is kind of the same thing where there's this, there was this idea for a very long time that this isn't our sport and you have to be an expert to watch it and you have to have an accent and you have to celebrate a club. Use the vocabulary. It, you have to be yeah. born into this, yeah. th this, and it needs to be passed down from your great grandfather. Yeah. Pronounce Jose Mourinho. Yeah, or yeah. Jose Mourinho, yeah exactly. Probably. Yeah, <laughs> and if, and, oh, God forbid you say a name the wrong yeah. way yeah. Or, or, you know, or call it, uh, a, you know, a field instead of a pitch. But yeah. slowly the shift has been, you can start whenever. I mean, just 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 find the bug. And so the American Outlaws really were, I mean, they perfectly encapsulate this idea of this is everyone's game. Let's come in, let's enjoy it. So the president has to understand how to plug into that instead of wanting to to run that. You, you know, that, that's, a, that's a kind of nuanced difference of U.S. soccer has actually tried to compete with American Outlaws and other fans. And I spoke with two of the founders of American Outlaws and they said, we approached U.S. soccer early on to say, we've got this thing, it's growing, mm -hmm. it's huge. And now, now it's massive. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of chapters across the country, this incredible network of fans. And they were basically offering it to U.S. soccer to say, here, let's do this together. Yeah. And, and th that that is a microcosm of what the relationship is across many different channels with U.S. soccer, they, they, they don't listen and they don't engage and, and understand that they're not there to run and, and, and pass down edicts. They're there to connect all of us. Yeah. They're there to be the ones to integrate a very complicated and, 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 and difficult structure of 55 associations, a country the size of, of Europe. I mean, we're a continent. But my dad always had the saying, if you can't fix it, feature it. Sure. So we, we're not going to change that. So the fans, I wanted to go sit with them because I need to see it from their perspective in order to get into a position like president of U.S. soccer and understand how we serve them better. And so recently, and it's taken way too long, they finally have a vote. Not a big vote, but that's a step in the right direction. I mean, that's crazy that that's something yeah. that's yeah. just started recently. So... Normally, this would be, you know, it's a, a friendly without all the European players. Normally, it's it, there's still a lot of excitement around it, the Bosnia game you were at, mm -hmm. because it's a World Cup year. But now it's sort of a friendly without all of the high-profile U.S. players, and there's not a World Cup game until yeah. uh, 2022, knock on wood. So, like, what is the, what's the vibe like? It's like Zeppelin like? without Robert Blake. Yeah. <laughs> so, what's the vibe like among the American Outlaws at a, at a game like that? Well, you know what? This is the time that I think they shine the most because there is great disappointment, heartbreak for sure. But the American Outlaws celebrate many aspects of the American soccer culture. So, uh, it's, of course, not exclusive to the U.S. men's national team. And it's also, they're not fair weather fans. It's, yeah. They weren't here and contingent on the U.S. men making World Cups. Yeah. They, they and 
this isn't me speaking from my opinion. This is me relaying the message I got when I walked around that tailgate. And they said, um, we just got around and this is where their chapters are amazing. And they have presidents and they connect and they have this, this network where they say, what do we need to do? And, and the message from all the chapters was, we need to galvanize. We, we need to show that we're still here. We need to show that we're going to go to games that have a bunch of fresh faces that don't, that don't quote unquote matter at this point. Yeah. Um, so the turnout was great. I, uh, I last minute thought to myself, um, you know, what are the outlaws about? They're about just bringing people in and, and, and opening up this game for everyone. So I decided to buy 30 tickets and I said on Twitter, I have 30 tickets to the game tonight. Just come, come meet us at the tailgate. Mm-hmm. And those tickets were gone in half an hour from people that drove three hours, four hours away that weren't wow. planning on going to the game, yeah. but just needed, just needed that, that little olive branch. And, and that's kind of, that's a small version of what I think our federation needs to do on many levels is just give, give people a reason to engage. And then it's about retention. I mean, whether it's players or coaches or fans or administrators or refs, it's just about, let's show you why being a part of U.S. soccer, being a member is important, but then let's keep you in U.S. soccer. Let's keep you a fan of this game yeah. by servicing you and, and understanding what you're in it for. So to me, the <clears throat> position of U.S. president is kind of, I look at it and it's kind of like a thankless position in a lot of ways. You're kind of traveling all the time, dealing with FIFA, the crazy bureaucracy of FIFA. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like, you know, if you were a technical director, you'd be able to kind of get your hands dirty and enact some of the change that you're talking about. Anyway, there's a bunch of other positions you could sort of get into and sort of address a lot of the problems you're talking about. Yeah. And you even mentioned before you decided to run, you were con- considering not running because it's an unpaid position. So why why U.S. soccer president, basically? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. It's the question my wife asked me. <laughs> yeah. so did she, she call like, you before this? Director? Yeah, say, she, can you please convince him me. to yeah. drop out of this? Um, no, I joke. My wife just needed to know why. She, she saw the passion. She saw the heartache. She saw the disappointment and not the men failing to qualify for the World Cup, but the fact that we've reached an inflection point based on a culture that has become about patronage and it's become about uh, a handful of people making every decision for soccer in this country. Yeah. And it should have never been that way. And we're all to blame. I'm to blame for not pushing against that, knowing full well that that's where things were trending qualifying for World Cups and the women being so successful. There was just so many things that papered over the cracks. So um, the reason why now before why president is because there's an opportunity and that opportunity didn't exist without failure. And that, and that's, that's emblematic of, of a, a toxic culture where you need failure in order to change and massive failure. I mean, this is the first time since 1986, the men have failed to qualify for a World Cup. So, um, when I say opportunity, I don't mean it in sort of the pejorative way or, or the, like an opportunist. I mean that we weren't going to be able to break up a power structure that had insulated themselves at the top through a lack of accountability and transparency. So now the, the, the questions they need to answer, they don't have great answers for. And, and finally, enough of the membership have been activated and want change, actual change, not What's, what's being attempted right now, which is the optics of change, architect, um, 
uh, created and the architecture of that is behind the scenes in a clandestine way from people on the inside. The membership doesn't want that. And, and they're saying loudly that they don't want that. So um, the reason I, I, I thought to myself, this has to be the time is, is I'm, what keeps me up at night is if, if we miss this opportunity to elect someone that will finally give us the federation we deserve and, and, and grow the game from the bottom up, if we miss that, the men are going to qualify for the next World Cup. The women are going to continue to succeed, even though we're not giving them a lot of help in that direction. And the youth is struggling. So there's a, there's a trend there that's very <laughs> worrying. Um, we're going to get the 2026 bid. Our bid is the strongest and we're well positioned. If, if all of that happens and we allow the, the, the establishment to install their own candidate, the narrative is going to be nothing's wrong, nothing to see here. And we and we lose this gift, this incredible opportunity. So why president? I never dreamed to do this. I mean, this was not what I was yeah. sitting in the backyard yeah. saying, man, one day I want to be U.S. soccer president. <laughs> I, I was in the backyard doing the commentary for my own World Cup winning goal while my mom's <laughs> screaming at me because I wanted to see the game celebrated here the way it is around the world. I, I fell in love yeah. with something before my friends even knew what it was. And it was kind of this weird underground community. You know, we were like the Dungeons and Dragons, you know, going to Comic-Con. We thought we had something cool that no one else understood. Watching yeah. a Fox Soccer Report for the fifth time yeah. in one night. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it re basically repeated itself within yeah. the hour. Yeah. It was our sports center. Yeah. And so, um, listen, to watch it grow the way it has, some of that's inertia because this is such a great game. And some of it is good decisions from mm -hmm. people that have been on the inside. And, and they need to, to, we need to give them credit for that. But there was a demarcation point of diminishing returns that we missed a little while ago. And so why president now? We need someone who could be a technical director. We need someone to protect a board that fell asleep at the wheel. I mean, this board right now, the U.S. Soccer Board, the health of the organization is dependent on them overseeing the staff, the president, and knowing how departments are behaving, how decisions are being made. They still don't know how head, head coaches were hired. And I knew that months after these decisions were made outside of U.S. soccer. Yeah. So um, th th that is a, a very troubling reality that the board of U.S. soccer still doesn't really have a grasp on how the organization runs. So right now you need a president with soccer now and technical ability. So they can protect us from bad decisions in a holistic way that affect the entire membership on, on a macro scale. And a lot of these decisions have happened recently and the membership have been screaming out saying that's hurting us. So like what kind yeah. of decisions specifically would you I'll, well, I'll give you one very specific yeah. example. So the PDI, a player development initiative, was created. And the way everything's created with the Federation, it's created in a very small group of people maybe not qualified to make these decisions and others definitely qualified to make these yeah. decisions. And they come up with sweeping regulation and ideas about the youth game or or the elite game above above that structure. I mean, they try to define this pyramid up to the professional game and national team. One rule they came up with this in, the, in this PDI was to align ourselves with how they do it in Europe, which is change it from being a sort of calendar year mm -hmm. where you play with your buddies that you go to school with when you're young to... Um, well, I'm this age and I've got to play with this age group. M meanwhile, that splits up best friends. So mm -hmm, yeah. it's just so tone deaf to think to yourself, well, what's this game about? Well, this game is about health, wellness, community, and opportunity. You came up with a rule that split up 
you know, kids that just want to go out and have fun. And what's the result? The result is an exodus out of the game. I mean, 50% of kids leave the game before the age of 10, and our participation is down 25% from last year. You, you can directly correlate that with these decisions that the membership were screaming, this is not good. We shouldn't be doing this. But the problem is they scream that after the decision's made. Sure, so they're not yeah. involved. There's no discourse before these decisions are made. So what we need right now is a president that goes in. And first off, this sounds ridiculous. It's hard to say this with a, with a straight face. Hires a technical director. I mean, it is one of the most crucial positions within an organization like this. And Sunil Gulati, the president of U.S. Soccer, essentially was the technical director for a long time, unilaterally making decisions he absolutely is not qualified to make. Now, someone qualified to make them, let's say... I could make a decision on on who should be head coach or how we change the 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 development academy structure. I, I should never do anything in there unilaterally. I, I have to create yeah. a diverse board that can advise me, qualified people that understand the entire membership and the entire landscape, and then you have a a board, um, fifteen people, seventeen people when you include those that don't vote, who who you need to go to and explain to them the decisions that we have and give them good options after you vet it and get rid of the things that could harm us and then engage them and have them help us make these decisions. That's how a healthy organization works. This organization um, has the facade of being modernized, but it still is run out of a, a garage. I mean, it, it, at one point, U.S. soccer was almost insolvent and people were cutting personal checks to keep this thing alive. And Sunil Galati was going and buying soccer balls from Kmart. Yeah. And so we need to remember that, that Sunil Gladi did great things and many people at the beginning of this helped it through a very tough time. Yeah, it's like almost like Dortmund where it's like, you've got to remember this. This is this is like almost a club that was out of business 10 yeah, years ago. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and, and listen, it's not mutually exclusive. You can be angry and, and you can say some of the decisions as it evolved because of the echo chamber they were in and not surrounding themselves with experts started to, to harm the, the, the program. Um, my dad's analogy, and I, I love my dad. He, he's a very successful businessman who's been helping to, to advise me and just consult me my whole life, but recently. And he said, Kyle, if you were in a burning house and we we're on the second floor uh, story and, and I threw you out the window and you broke your legs and you look back and saw that there was a fire escape, you could be mad at me that you broke your legs, but I bet you you'll love me for saving your life. Yeah, right. you know? yeah. So we can be really thankful that they got a lot of these things right. But what happened along the way as the budget grew, as the surplus grew, as the staff grew, I mean, 150 staff, $120 million budget, $150 million surplus, they never modernized and, and, and created the checks and balances essential to have a system that runs with, with the sort of efficacy and transparency that you can troubleshoot when things go wrong, right? So what it looks like is basically when you go into a model home and you and you walk around, it's beautiful. I mean, look at that Wolf Range and the Carrera Marble. And then you go to open the refrigerator and it's made of cardboard. And, and, and you think to yourself, oh, well, this isn't actually a real home. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the U.S. Soccer Federation in many ways is a facade. Now, that's not to say there aren't great people there because many of that staff I just listed are excellent and ready to help us move this thing forward. But no one's delegated to them. No one's empowered them to help educate and lead a president to good decisions. We've had a president um, who was a very smart guy and has made really good decisions early on, uh, who now has gotten into the situation where he's atrophied a bit from being inside. He, he's lost touch with the membership, um, but also 
he's trying too hard to be the expert in every single category. And the first thing we need from a president is someone with the humility to say, I'm not the expert in every yeah, category. Right. Yeah. One of the questions I have just about, I guess, fixing American soccer, uh, to put it bluntly, is that a lot of the things you have to do at the youth level, whether it's making it more affordable for kids to play, putting more technical centers throughout the country so more people are more likely to get seen, mm -hmm. um, making it cheaper to get a coaching license. Those are all things that are antithetical with making money in a lot of ways. You have to spend on those things, and maybe there's an economic benefit way down the road mm -hmm. that you have to see, or maybe there isn't. So how do you how do you thread that needle? How do you square those things? Yeah. Or are you kind of just, is the purpose of U.S. soccer to make money? You know, like, so how do you... Well, it's a nonprofit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I'm, of course. No, I know, yeah. With the huge surplus they yeah. supposedly so have. So really good question. Um, because sometimes people conflate in, investment in, in a philanthropic way with um, be, being, with lacking business savvy. And I think that's kind of what, like, the crux to what what you're getting to yeah. is how do you how do you walk and chew gum at the same time? Um, we're really fortunate that there's a CEO that runs the business, and, and Dan Flynn. We also are fortunate is going to stay on through this transition. So uh, it, it's I, I, let me just speak up for Dan Flynn. Not that he's asked me to, um, but he's one of the reasons the business has gone so well. Yeah. We've sold this idea that the the president is the one that's really made that happen. Uh, Dan Flynn is a smart man who understands the business better than anyone. When we failed to qualify for the World Cup the next day when everyone was out doing press, Dan Flynn went to the office to make sure he was he was understanding the implications of the, mm -hmm. the, the profit loss, the revenue that they were guaranteed that they weren't going to get, the consumer and their needs, how they were going to move this thing forward. Um, so he got right back to work. What a president needs to do is work in a symbiotic way to understand how he's going to use a budget to grow revenue and what needs to be reinvested into the product. So if U.S. soccer is a business, the, the product is soccer. And the big problem is we don't have a lot of product experts in there. So uh, the analogy I'd like to give is it's like a CEO that if you're co concentrating too much on profit and valuation, you do stock buybacks instead of spending money on R&D. Mm -hmm. So stock price looks amazing. Meanwhile, your product continues to suffer in the marketplace. And long term, that'll collapse, just like we saw with, with the men uh, down in Trinidad and Tobago. Mm -hmm. So what needs to happen is, while being fiscally responsible for sure, because uh, you can't go in and be the one, I'm going to make everything free. Um, you know, that, that, that campaign didn't work in, in our presidential election, <laughs> and uh, it's not going to work in the soccer election either. You need to understand that a healthy uh, and, and responsible budget that creates, especially now that we have a huge loss, creates stability and uh, does it in a way that we make sure that things can get paid for. That, that, that dance is a, is a really important one that a president has to understand. But here, here are the things I've seen from the outside, the, the trickle-down economics that's going on, is before we even talk about what we can spend in the $150 million surplus, I look at it as opportunity cost to, to spend on a lot of the things you just yeah. mentioned. Um, before you even touch that money, the, the budget is not distributed the right way. So I'll give you one example. We're going to spend $3 million on a coach we don't have anymore, Jurgen Klinsmann. Yeah. Multiples of what we paid the last coach for the same, if not worse, results. Yeah. 
that was that was a poor decision easily in hindsight right now. And most of us had the technical nows to know that was probably not going to turn out well because we have relationships in Europe that we called right after we hired sure. them. Um, none of that happened when they made this decision initially. So now we have a huge line item, right? We've spent $3 million over the past 10 years on financial aid. So, so that that comparison just goes to show you how they've been thinking. They've been thinking, spend big at the top. It helps out these local communities. It doesn't. We know that now. And it's easy to take the numbers and prove that. So we need to go through the budget. And by we, I say, myself, the president, Dan Flynn, the CEO. And now they're talking about GMs and other positions that they want to hire. I hope they'll wait for the new leader to get there before they start hiring people, especially when the membership (laughs) elect this person. They don't hire a GM. Yeah. They don't hire a technical director. The president is the one the membership say, we need this person involved in every single decision on our behalf. Yeah. So the fact that in a clandestine way, they're trying to do these things before February 10th, again, it's just, it goes back to, to what got us in this situation to begin with. And what worries me so much is we, we can spend on the right things. We can fix this budget to grow a soccer culture, which by the way, is how you win a World Cup. Now, that's not a short-term strategy, but hiring a head coach right now is not a priority. Finding a men's national team coach should not be what we're spending most of our bandwidth and, 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 and uh, surplus or budget on. It needs to be about hiring people that can help us understand where to spend at the bottom of the pyramid. But what I'm concerned about is they keep selling this idea of, uh, if you look at the election right now, there are two candidates who are inside candidates. Kathy Carter, uh, coming from some, who, if you read all of her statements and see the support she's getting from Sunil Gladi and Don Garber, who aren't hiding the fact that they're they're out there yeah. uh, and in, in some ways privately lobbying in other yeah. ways doing articles to say that they're supporting her. Um, th- th- that worries the membership big time. And, and the membership have already made it pretty clear that they're not comfortable without. And that created this kind of distraction that that made everyone not pay attention to Carlos Cordero as a vice president is a person who's been on the inside this whole time. So speaking now about against the sum deal and saying, you know, we need transparency, this sum deal, we need to understand more about it. He does. For the last decade, he was there. He saw it. He allowed it. And Don Garber said it in an interview with Grant Wall recently, saying, I'm surprised that Carlos Cordero would speak out against that now when he had the opportunity the whole time from the inside to do so. And so- uh, th- this this idea that we need business people uh, and business people who are being pushed in by the people that got us in this problem to begin with, the membership are really angry about it. And I'm on the phone with them all day long. And so what they say to me is, there are two, there are two positions recently that have come up that are big topics is the paid position. And you mentioned that earlier. Um, I, I, I'm, I've already agreed to do this for free. I, I, I've quit my job. Uh, a job I love, a dream job. I've quit it because this is so important to me right now, and it's important to soccer in this country. Um, the membership decide whether it's paid or not. I don't. Yeah. I just I feel based on what the membership have told me that if you make it a paid position, you bring better quality candidates and a bigger quantity of them to challenge every four years. To have three elections of an unchallenged campaign shouldn't be good. Yeah. I mean, that's not good for anyone, yeah. right? So here's one mechanism to switch on to make sure this person works full-time for U.S. soccer. We know what they make. They're not going to profit in any other ways off of this office. And now we have someone to hold accountable. And we know 
I'm basically lobbying for something that's going to make it harder to keep the job in four years mm-hmm. if yeah. they don't do a good job. Here come great challengers. For Carlos Cordero, who sent a letter out to the constituents saying that he strongly disagrees with it being a paid position, as the only independently wealthy person in this election, <laughs> that does not come sure. off well to the yeah. membership. And they immediately reached out to me to say, this is our choice, not his. So um, the membership are really, really concerned that they're not being listened to. And, and the fact that people that sit on the U.S. soccer board are, are, are getting behind two candidates— and also two candidates who are not talking to any of the other candidates. So yeah. I've spoken with every single candidate multiple times except two, Kathy Carter and Carlos Cordero. Why? I mean, this is about collaboration. This is about inclusion. And Carlos Cordero has great business experience that he's touting from Goldman Sachs. Um, you know, he's been on the inside, which he's seen the way it shouldn't be run. He hasn't seen the way it should be run yet, but, but he's been there and that's great. And he has people that tell me and people I respect that he's a good guy and, and the biggest question I have is it seems like it's president or bust for him. Sure, and I just right. don't know why, because we get all of his strengths as vice president to help out with the World Cup bid and, and to understand the business and, and help co-chair a board if he has a president that finally operates the right way. But um, we take a huge leap of faith that he'll hire the right soccer people, which is what we just went through with Sunil Galati, if he's president. So I just think to myself, why— Knowing full well I'm someone that could win this election, why wouldn't you be interested in talking with yeah, me? Yeah, even if it was see, just an exchange. To, yeah, yeah, to see if I win this thing, if we can really work together to move U.S. soccer forward. So that really disappoints me. One of the things I, I noticed in reading a lot of the interviews that you've been doing up until this one, uh, <clears throat> and we can actually even expand this conversation to include the Premier League, but we've been writing a lot, we've been talking a lot this whole season about how, like, how Manchester City has sort of driven people insane. This <laughs> idea that they are so clearly far and away yeah. better than the cl- next closest team yeah. has kind of changed the calculus for all these guys. You see what's happening at Conte. You see what's happening even to Mourinho. It's Barcelona all over again. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And I wonder whether or not on the What's the constant there? It's Barcelona all over again. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and we've seen it in the NBA with the Warriors. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. Um, I wonder whether on the international level it's Germany to some extent because I, I feel like I we, we witnessed this with England where they did the, the what they call the root and branch mm-hmm. upheaval and the redesign of, of National and Germany's DOS, re, the, the, yeah, the, the and reboot. I think that that was yeah. the the thing that everybody saw was just like you can produce multiple generations. I mean, they have more upper tier soccer talent than they even have places on a, a national team. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. they won the Confederations Cup with like their D team. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, was yeah. seeing that happen over the last ten or fifteen years an eye opening experience for you? And do you think that almost throws off the the curve? Yeah, because you know what happens is. Um, People try to mimic. Yeah. And you can't be Manchester City. You can't be Barcelona. You can't be Messi. You know, and like, and, 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 and that's okay. It kind of goes back to this idea of humility. Um, we can go cherry pick best practices around the world, but, but not if we can't understand. We're never going to be like that. And that we're never going to look like that. I mean, Germany spent $2 billion on their reboot, right? When they f- had that European failure. They're the size of Oklahoma and they've won a yeah. World Cup before. Yeah. So we're never going to do that. But that doesn't mean we can't, you know, centers of excellence. They have 390. Okay, so that's a good idea of having free opportunities for kids to get involved and get access to great coaching. Uh, create these networks all across the country. And the Development Academy has touched that in, in, in a certain way, but doesn't obviously serve a huge yeah. part of this country. So one of the things I wanted to do recently 
was just, and Claudio Reyna did an amazing job. I don't know if you saw his comments in the aftermath of Trinidad Tobago. He basically said, we're so arrogant. Can, can we just be okay with the fact that we're not there yet? And in some ways, not even close. And why would we be? So yeah. can we just like start there? Let's all just agree with that <laughs> yeah. first. Yeah. Because if we can't agree on that, where, like where is our jumping off point? So I, um, Thierry Henry and David Beckham were two people. I, I fortunate have been able to establish a friendship based on playing with David and with Thierry just soccer. And, and he's, a, he's a student of it. And I just love talking with him about it. Um, so I went over to London recently to see Thierry. And was so like honored and appreciate and so appreciative that they wrote letters to endorse me. And the reason I it wasn't elitist, although it, l- it looks pretty elitist, it was just because they're they're immune to the political retribution sure. of supporting a candidate. Right. And a lot of the people that are supporting me just don't feel comfortable yet s- saying it, which is which is a, a cultural issue we need to get rid of. And it's not their fault. And I and I I understand and appreciate their support behind the scenes. But I went to Thierry and said, help us. Help us see that we think this is how you do it. Can you please come over and help us see that we, you don't do it that way? Yeah. yeah. So he showed me this incredible PDF, uh, this amazing PowerPoint of um, the Barcelona ethos that he worked with one of the technical directors there based on a coaching course he took. It's like 80 slides. It's, I mean, or no, this one is, is shorter. It was like 40 slides. It's incredible. And it basically helps you understand what's the mindset? What's the, what is the culture there? What's the ethos of La Masia leading up to Pep's mad genius? And um, the reason I wanted him to come and he came to the convention in Philly to show it was it dispels this notion that they professionalize the game at a very, very young level. They, they don't. So th- at that level, it is about just enjoyment. It's about Finding the player you are at a young Isn't level. Isn't it all ball work too? Like yeah, well, so a, lot of tech, yeah, a lot of but technique. Even, I mean, that's results. like a, but a lot of unstructured. Yeah. It is zero. <laughs> so it's funny you say that. He a few times when he was taking through the slide, he he turned to a crowd, and the crowd was amazing, like packed out through the back doors of of the of the room, and he said, "Has anyone seen the, seen the word win yet? Yeah. It, it will. Let me just you know, let me just ruin it for you. Spoiler alert: You won't see it the whole time. Yeah. They don't talk about winning." They they t- but they do talk several times in the in the in the presentation about enjoyment. You have to enjoy the experience. And our kids, Mia Ham said this to me, um, and it blew me away. And she's coaching under twelves right up the road, and she said, "Kyle, there's an epidemic going on where the kids aren't enjoying it anymore." And, and so we've lost that based on thinking this is how they do it abroad. No, they play street soccer. I mean. The Ballon d'Or list is littered with with kids from favelas. I mean, from the lowest income communities. Yeah. It's a blue sco- uh, collar sport all over the world. So it's okay to go and look at France and and Argentina and Germany. I mean, France failed to qualify in ninety and ninety four and won in ninety eight. Yeah. Failing to qualify for World Cup is not a burn it all down moment. Sure. But it is an opportunity that they took mm-hmm. to focus on the youth. That Germany took to focus on the youth. That we have to take to focus on the youth. And then, to your point. Pep Guardiola, now everyone's going to want to, you know, move their fullbacks inside and, you know, play with a goalkeeper <laughs> that never touches it with his hands. You know, like everyone's going to want to try that. And it was a back three after Van Gaal did so well with, with Holland in the World Cup. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's always these fads. And that's the cool part about the game is everyone's trying to keep up with the Joneses. 
But what we, we have- were joking about, remember when Swansea played Tika Taka for, for like two yeah, or three yeah, seasons? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that got Brendan Rodgers yeah. and, and, and Souza, and I mean, yeah. and, and lived on that. And I was, they're kind of dying on yeah, that right. in the Premier League. But that, you can only say, let's go grab best practices if you're willing to say, we're not going to look like that. Yeah. And, and, and it's not plug and play. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's, you, you alluded to the size of the country, which is like, just such it just puts us on a different level than basically any of these other any of the other nations we're aiming to eventually compete mm-hmm. with right at an international level but the other thing you mentioned is how diverse the sort of playing base is in those countries and from income level from ethnicity soccer here the higher it's rich higher up you get at the food chain yeah the whiter it gets mm-hmm. the richer you are yeah how like, how do we change that? <clears throat> well, su- subsidizing the game, yeah, of course. And and here's one mechanism that's used all over the world: solidarity payments. So, this has turned into this like pantomime villain, and 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 there's some there's labor laws and all these reasons we can't do these things. We absolutely can. So the way it works uh, in in other countries, um, pay to play exists here. It exists in every sport here. It yeah. exists in every country. But the way that they keep costs really low is they invest locally. So Thierry Henry couldn't afford cleats when he was young and his local team paid for everything. And so I just talked earlier about financial aid. Obviously, we're not doing a lot to to subsidize the game and make it more affordable. The other thing we're doing is creating incredible market confusion. So there's so many players in the space that are confusing parents and basically selling this idea that your kid's future has to be decided now at eight and nine years old. And if you don't get them in this professional environment with an A-licensed coach, they're going to be behind. They're not going to go to college. And I'm a parent now. If my son doesn't finish his bottle, I'm like a mess all day long. I mean, imagine <laughs> if I'm making a decision that like my, my I'm watching what my whole kids. What if he can't kids. shield the back four? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but imagine if I'm making a decision that like I feel like impacts my kid for the rest of their sure. lives. They, they are pushing these parents at a, at a, at a too early in a, a point to spend way too much. I mean, four or 5,000 upwards to $10,000 when you include travel. And instead of localizing the game and making it more grassroots and, and, and defining this market and regulating it, we continue as a federation to be a competitor in this space by allowing incredible market confusion where people are following rules or not yeah. and poaching other players, driving cost up. Um, that's not to say some of these ideas aren't good. Development Academy, great idea executed the wrong way, right? Because 20% of the academies are free. Yeah. Great. So that's one way we do this is MLS, you pay for these kids, you train them. Now you have a pipeline of athletes that may make it into your club. That's how they do it everywhere else. But 80% of the academies are still pay to play and are so much more expensive to participate in now based on that And you're not, on that model. you're not, there's, it's by luck if you're near an MLS academy. Well, yeah, they only serve half of the states. If you're in Montana. So it's basically like an astronomer looking for new stars by never moving the telescope. Yeah. So um, what we have to do is these associations, the, the ones I, I, I just went and spoke in front of Connecticut Youth Soccer Association. I can go around the country and say, New Jersey, you know, uh, Tab Ramos, Tony Miola, uh, you know, Claudio Reyna. Um, Connecticut, myself, Manny Failheiber. I can go um, Georgia, uh, Clint Mathis, Josh Wolf, mm-hmm. uh, California, uh, Kobe Jones. All of these states develop these players. Yeah. I mean, Clint Dempsey played co-ed rec soccer because his parents couldn't afford the Dallas Texans as a 13-year-old. Yeah. Co-ed rec soccer became one of the best players ever. So, But then he also 
like had parents that were willing to drive him like what was it three yeah, hours to practice once he started playing so that it even that even requires such a big an investment you know, a and sacrifice yeah be able to do that yeah and so um when you say underserved it means two things it means inner city low income and it means rural I, underserved in the fact that hey we're out here is anyone going to come watch us play because we're, we're actually pretty good maybe we could play in college or maybe we could be on your na- youth national teams your full national team so um we have to, and we're not going to spend our way out of this problem going back to your question earlier. We have to empower the associations, the people that are boots on the ground. And they want a leader and they're okay with mandates, but they just want to be involved in the architecture and they want to know if federation's going to police what we all agree upon. It's strange because like, I got to be honest, I, it seems like the, the USMNT failure to qualify is almost incidental to you running. You know what I mean? It's, well, it seems like the most important thing, well, right? Yeah. But you think it, it would be, be that would be a catalyst for like, you're like, well, look, it's ne- the least important thing never happen right again. And then it just seems like you could talk, we could be here for two hours and maybe- Especially mention, the way I answer questions. Well, no, but, we, <laughs> but like, we haven't talked one time about like, how should they be playing? Who should be farmed out? Who mm. should be brought in? All it's that stuff. It's not important right now. Yeah. It's not. And that's crazy to say as a president of US soccer, but it's true. It's also the sexiest thing to talk about. It would yeah. be the easiest thing would be like, we it, have to gig and sound bites. Gonna, yeah. It's sound bites, right. right? And the membership don't care. Of course, they want to sit on a couch or go into a bar this summer and watch the men in the World Cup, but they don't, that doesn't impact their membership in a big way. Now, you need to believe in, we're going to lose fans that we could have hooked by that kind of herd mentality and the yeah. osmosis of yeah. being in a bar. What are you guys watching? Oh, we're watching the US men. Well, and if the U.S. men were as good as the U.S. women, we'd be hooking a lot more fans sure, because yeah. getting to World Cup <laughs> right. finals helps out a lot. Right. But um, we'll, we'll get over that. that. That's not catastrophic. What would be catastrophic, however, which is a big high-level thing, is not getting this 2026 bid. So in 1994, I went to watch Roberto Baggio at, at Giant Stadium. And I'm like getting chills right now thinking Change about it. it. It basically, it said, here's your hero. He's right in front of you. Here's a stadium that at that point we didn't have a professional league, but here's a stadium that has soccer playing in it, yeah. right? So that was, that. I mean, transformative. And so 2026, if we fail to get that bid, and this kind of goes back to um, Carlos Cordero, the vice president, sending out this letter to the, to the constituents saying, I'm uniquely positioned to help us get that bid based on my relationships with FIFA. And I, and I just push back and say, well, as vice president, you ha- that's all there too. But with a president, that has Thierry Henry and David Beckham behind them and cares about this game. And isn't that value add to that bid? And doesn't that help us really push to make sure we grow the team that can land that bid? Mm -hmm. Because if we miss that, and you know why we will? Arrogance. Arrogance will be why we miss that bid and why we think it's in the bag and we lose it. If I'm, I'm telling you, that is catastrophic if we don't land that. Who else is in the mix? It's us in Morocco who uh, didn't have a website as of... Which isn't good for them. <laughs> like yeah. a week ago. But, but again, like, you, you say that. Yeah, exactly. Well, but like, if but we people have are thinking to, like that, we, yeah, the, the harder <laughs> the harder than becoming first is staying first, yeah. right? So I'm dealing with that right now in a presidential campaign. You know, I, I could look at, at calculations and, and I think we should avoid predicting elections based on what yeah. we just saw. Sure. Um, but I could feel pretty good about the position I'm in, but that that's arrogant. I mean, that, that's saying what got you here is listening to the membership and hustling to make sure you understand what they need and then putting a plan out there. And my progress plan, thank you for reading, it's dense. And I, and I know that you didn't get into podcasts to read position papers. <laughs> but um, 
it's it's and this this sounds arrogant. So I I can't avoid it. it. It stands above all the other plans, not because I wrote it, but because I led a group that co-authored it. And it's the group that no one's been listening to. And it's the way to lead. It's the way to govern. And so if we go about this that way, we have good plans. Everyone's engaged. We continue to evolve. And we grow a soccer culture, not, not, a, not a soccer revenue stream. And then you hire Guardiola. And I hire Pep Guardiola, <laughs> yeah. which, by the way, I mean, if, if he's willing to take a massive pay cut, I will, I will definitely, I will definitely go there. Kyle, thank you so much for coming by, man. Well, thanks yeah, for having me. Awesome. Best of luck. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks. This episode of Ringer FC is brought to you by Propercloth, the leader in men's custom shirts. At propercloth.com, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Shirts start at $80 and are delivered in just two weeks. From premium quality and perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com and use the gift code FC to get $20 off your first custom shirt today.